Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. Will you stand for the reading of God's Word? On that day, some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus and asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up a seed for his brother. Now there were seven brothers with us and the first married and died and having no seed, he left his wife to his brother. So also the second, the third, down to the seventh. And last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had married her. But Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Heavenly Father, we come before you asking you to reveal yourself through your word. May it not come through human words, but Father, through your word and your power, by your Holy Spirit, bringing conviction. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in the midst of a series of tests of Christ that occupy a portion of the last week of his life. The, the enmity to Jesus of the, of the leaders of the Jews is well stoked at this point. They have grown in their appreciation of him and their hatred of him as they've seen his power and the authority that he wields as he teaches, the, the miracles that he performs. They have, in a sense, given up on defeating him when he prior to this final week, just a few short days, maybe a week or two prior to his triumphal entry when he brought back from the dead Lazarus, the rulers of the, of the Jews said, look, you know, everyone's going over to this man. We can't do anything against him. Look at what he's doing. So it was well known. It was well established, the powers of Christ. And, and he was well hated at this point. And so we see a series of, of, of tests. Not all of them are labeled tests, but they're all clearly tests of Jesus that take place in this final week. There had been two tests of Christ that had taken place before in Matthew. Um, maybe there were many, but at least two are mentioned that took place before the events of this final week in which there are really three or probably four. I know I said three last week, but probably this last one is a test, though it's distinct in certain ways. But uh, we'll look at that next week. Those, the tests that, that have taken place thus far are found in Matthew 16, where the Pharisees and the Sadducees together come to Jesus and they say, Teacher, good teacher, show us a sign from heaven. Now, he was in the midst of his ministry. He had just, he had just fed 4,000 out of a few loaves and fishes. His fame had, had spread. It was radiating around the world, not just the Jewish world, but especially the Jewish world. But he had, he had come from the lands to the north, Sidon, up in modern-day Lebanon, and had worked miracles there. He's been down in the south and the 
in the region of Jerusalem. And in Matthew 16, they come to test him to say, give us a sign from heaven. They are not satisfied with what they have seen or what they have heard. They want an explicit sign given them. They want something that is directly from heaven for them in Matthew 16. And Jesus says, I'm not going to give you any sign. The only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. In Matthew 19, the Pharisees alone come to Christ and they, they ask him a test about divorce. They say, teacher, Moses and his law said we can divorce. Is it possible? Is it right to divorce for any and every reason? Trying to pit Christ on the, pin him on the horns of a dilemma to make him choose one or another of two unattractive options. Either he can say, yeah, it is, and, and seem dissipated, you know, immoral. Yeah, you can just run off from your wife for whatever reason. Or to make him, to make him seem uh, against Moses, who had said that divorce was possible. And so that was the second test prior to this final week. Now, during this final week, there are a series of further tests, and the first of them comes through the, the priests and the elders. Jesus is teaching in the temple, and we saw this several weeks ago. He's preaching in the temple. The high priests and the elders of the people, the, very, the creme de la creme of Jerusalem in terms of religious leadership and secular leadership of the Jews, not the Romans, come to Christ and they say, by what authority are you doing these things? They have seen him come in in the, the triumphal entry and they've seen the children praising him and the clothes thrown before him and the, all this stuff and they're saying, well, and then they've seen him cleanse the temple, their temple, where they rule. And then they've seen him start teaching in the temple and the crowds gathered around him and their, their crowds and their temple and they're, they're upset and so they say, by what authority? And he asks them, by what authority did John do what he did? And they can't answer, and so he dispatches them. Then last week we saw the Pharisees and the Herodians come. Pharisees are now, at, at, at the point of last week, are now coming with a second group that they are, in a sense, committed enemies of. The Pharisees and Sadducees are committed enemies and yet the first test of Christ is them coming together for a sign. Then last week they come with the Herodians and it is two diametrically opposed groups within the politics and the religious sphere of Jerusalem. They come together against Christ because both, both are threatened and they're willing to make common cause. The enemy of my enemy is my friend and so th that's what ties them together. Today we see the Sadducees come alone and as we've seen the Pharisees do uh, with the question about divorce, now the Sadducees, they take their turn in attacking Jesus and asking him this question about the resurrection, this, this hypothetical situation, which they present as perhaps a real situation, but we all understand it's hypothetical because they deny the resurrection. They have two goals in mind by asking this question. They want to make it clear that the idea of a resurrection, which they deny, is nonsense. And in so doing, to come against Jesus, who has talked over and over about his kingdom and in the resurrection, he talks about the resurrection all through his ministry, and they want to attack him on that principle and make it clear that he's talking nonsense and isn't to be relied upon. And they've come up with this, this example, this hypothetical reason for, for dismissing the resurrection. 
They also, at the same time, if they can, if they can get Christ on the resurrection, they're going to score points against the, the Pharisees because the Pharisees and the Sadducees are sort of irretrievably opposed over a whole series of things culminating in a sense in the Pharisees saying, yes, there is a resurrection and the, uh, the Sadducees denying the reality of it. Their opposition is so great on this issue that later in the book of Acts, we find Paul standing in front of the Sanhedrin, which is where these two parties would come together in the ruling of the Jews and saying and shouting out, I am on trial for my belief in the resurrection, which immediately pits the Pharisees against the Sadducees and the Pharisees say, well, let him go. He believes the truth. And the Sadducees say, away with him because he has said he believes in the resurrection. And so he, Paul uses this, this, this opposition to his advantage in the book of Acts. Here they come and they want to, they want to put Christ down. They want to show him to be, to be illogical and therefore unscriptural as they see it using this story now i i I think it's important to understand that if we look through the enemies of christ and they're arranged from the herodians to the chief priests to the elders of the people to the pharisees to the sadducees that's five different groups of people we might be inclined to say that the, the people we're closest to being, the ones that we come closest to finding in our hearts and in our lives are the, are the, the Pharisees, the ones who say, you've got to be utterly particular in your obedience, that it's your obedience that causes God to look to you with favor. It's your obedience and you force God's hand by, by your obedience. You make him propitiated by your, you satisfy his sense of justice by the things you do, by your tithing, by your observance of all the law, and so they were big on the law. And we'd say, well, that's probably who I'm closest to, but I want to I challenge you on that this morning and say, is that really who you're closest to? I think the, the group that we may well be closest to out of these five is the Sadducees. Because these men are, they are ruthless rationalists. And they are ruthless rationalists because they are, in their hearts, utter empiricists. They do not trust their hearts, they trust their senses. What they can see, what they can touch, what they can taste, what they have heard, these are the things that they are convinced of and nothing else. They are empiricists. And out of their empiricism, I will believe it if I see it, they are rationalists. That's why they came to Jesus with the Pharisees and said, give us a sign, Jesus. Give us a sign. Now, he's in the midst of doing all these signs, isn't he? His whole ministry was signs. He's done, the Bible says if all the things he did were written down, not all the books on earth could hold the stories of all his signs, but these men come to him and say, give us a sign from heaven. Now, what would satisfy them? A sign from heaven, you know, as though the making of bread for 4,000 is not a sign or not from heaven. As though Jesus causing the blind to see is either not a sign or it's not clearly from heaven. So we know that they want a sign from heaven. And they say, if you give us a sign from heaven, then we might believe you. But if, if the hand appeared in the sky writing in cursive it, 
you know, lightning across the sky. Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, my son, your savior. (laughs) These men would say, well, how do I know where that came from? That's what they've done with everything else he's done. That's their response. You could give them lightning spelling it out and they'd still say, well, was that from heaven? We don't know where that came from. And so they are utterly rational as they see it, and they are, because they are committed empiricists, which means they will believe what they can touch and nothing more. What they are not is men of the heart. And in this, they're like the Pharisees. And this is the root of their error. They have no heart. They have a mind, but they have no heart. And they are convinced of the superiority of the mind. They're convinced that to be empirical, to say, show me, prove it, I want it proven, is the way to live. And that this is the demand of logic. And that God is a God of of rational, logical thought. And they are convinced that by their minds they approach God. So, I'm reminded by them, and I've had it going through my mind, and I finally went and got the words and put it down here. Every time I've been thinking about the Sadducees over the last couple of days, I keep on having this kink song run through my head. How many of you remember the kinks? No one. Are you Okay, uh, Tim Spielick, if you said no, I'd come down and I'd say, you are not an honest man, but I know you're an honest man, and you admitted it. The kinks, part of the British invasion, had the song... What's their most famous song, Tim? You, you, you don't know? Any of you know the song, Dedicated Follower of Fashion? Oh, come on. They seek him here, they seek him there. Oh, da 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 Oh, da 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 Because he's a dedicated follower of fashion. You know that? That was before your time, Ed, right. <laughs> they seek him here. They seek him there. His lo- clothes are loud, but never square. It will break him. It will make or break him. So he's got to buy the best because he's a dedicated follower of fashion. And when he does his little rounds around the boutiques of London town, eagerly pursuing all the latest fads and trends, because he's a dedicated follower of fashion. Oh, yes, he is. Oh, yes, he is. Oh, yes, he is. Oh, yes, he is. He thinks he's a flower to be looked at. And when he pulls his frilly nylon panties right up tight, he feels a dedicated follower of fashion. Oh, yes, he is. Oh, yes, he is. Oh, yes, he is. Oh, yes, he is. There's one thing that he loves, and that is flattery. One week he's in polka dots. The next week he's in stripes because he's a dedicated follower of fashion. They seek him here. They seek him there in Regent Street and Leicester Square. Everywhere the Carnabetian army marches on. Each one a dedicated follower of fashion. Oh, yes, he is. Oh, yes, he is. Oh, yes, he is. Oh, yes, he is. His world is built around discotheques and parties. This pleasure-seeking individual always looks his best because he's a dedicated follower of fashion. Oh, yes, he is. Oh, yes, he is. Oh, yes, he is. Oh, yes, he is. He flits from shop to shop just like a butterfly. In matters of the cloth, he's as fickle as can be because he's a dedicated follower of fashion. He's a dedicated follower of fashion. He's a dedicated follower of reason that's these men they are committed to reason dedicated followers of their minds of their logic of their of their hands and their arms and their eyes and their ears their touch their smell those they follow and they have no room no 
category, no, no love for anything that doesn't fit in their logical, empirical, dedicated followers of reason way of thinking. So, we have these dedicated followers of reason. And we say, oh, how benighted, how dark their understanding. They, they don't understand the Bible. It's very clear in the Bible that there's a resurrection. I mean, the Bible talks about a resurrection. But of course, these men don't uh, accept the whole Bible. They accept portions of the Bible and portions of the Bible they don't like. And what are the the books that they like, well, they're the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. Those are the only books that they, they accept. To them, the rest are like those books of Tobit and wisdom are to us, apocryphal. Maybe wise, but not authoritative. They accept, math, they accept Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. That's, that's their canon. That's all they have. They believe that God in those books does not teach anything about a resurrection and they're unwilling to go elsewhere in the Bible because <laughs> if you go elsewhere, you see David say of his son who died, you know, I, he will not return to me, but I will go to him, right? Remember he says that when his son dies as a result of the sin that he committed with Bathsheba. A clear statement of the resurrection, right? Or Job saying that, you know, Though he slay me, yet in my flesh will I see God. Though God kills me, yet in my body I'm going to see him one day. A statement of resurrection. You can go through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Jonah. You can go through all the books and find the resurrection. But they say in the first five books it's not there. And they don't accept it. In fact, they don't accept a whole lot of other things as well. We find later in the Bible, we're told that they don't accept the reality of angels. They don't accept, they don't accept the, the, the eternal nature of the soul. They really think that man is just a, a logical, rational animal. And that what lifts man above the beast is his rational mind by which he approaches life. And uh, as believers in the rational mind, they say, well, God does exist. I mean, even rational men ex will admit that God exists because it's taught in the Bible in those first five books. But they say he's, he's distant, remote, kind of unknowable, not presenting himself to us. Not, there's no such thing as miracles. There are no demons. But God is involved in this world. And he has given his rules in the books of Moses. And we must follow those books or he will make us suffer in this life. And so they're entirely materialist, right? You don't understand what I mean by materialist. They, they see nothing beyond this world. It is this world. And when we die, we die. And that's it. And there is nothing beyond this life. There's no angels, no demons, just God and you and me in this world. And we die and there's no more life for us. That's what these men believe. They are materialists. They are empiricists thus because they say there's nothing. And so show it to me in black and white. Give it to me in concrete terms. Demonstrate it before my eyes so I can touch and see it. And, they're, uh, and, and ultimately, they're rationalists. They say, 
if I can understand it, it's true. So this question about a woman with seven husbands is intended to point out the absurdity of a life to come because if such a life really does exist, this woman in that life, by the command of God, notice that they tell a story about a woman who has followed the law of Moses. The law of Moses in Exodus does say that if a, if a man is, is, is to die and leave a widow without a child, the wife of the deceased, the man who died, shall not be married, this is in Exodus 5, shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. This is the principle that set Boaz and Ruth together. Boaz redeemed her, took her to, to continue the line. And so it was something that was done in Israel. But they come with this story about a woman who has been married to seven brothers consecutively rather than a widow who just after the death of one husband like Elizabeth Taylor went to another, another, another. Elizabeth didn't wait for them to die. Because these marriages are required by God's word. Whereas the widow who just gets remarried is doing what she wants. And so this, this is powerful in their minds because they say, look, if there's a resurrection, God has made it. If there's really a resurrection, he's made it so that this woman in heaven will be guilty of the great sin of polyandry, which is to have multiple husbands. And that can't be. God's not going to allow a woman to be married to seven men in heaven. He doesn't allow it on earth. He's not going to allow that in heaven. Therefore, God not being inconsistent with himself, God being measured by our minds, there can't be a resurrection. You understand? And it's, it's a precisely framed hypothetical because they want to make it that God is being inconsistent with himself. It's not just a problem of this widow doing this seven times, some widow marrying seven different men that she likes. God had made her do it. And so they're pointing out, as they see it, the absurdity of a life to come, which, in which if this woman had done this, she'd be guilty of a real sin because she would then be married to seven men. And they go, yep, yep, yep. As logical men do, men who think they're smart, men who think that they can rule the world by their minds, and women, they think, we caught him. We showed him up. We put Christ down. Pharisees couldn't do it. The Herodians couldn't do it. The chief priests couldn't do it. None of them could do it, but we did it. We put him down. Now, it's a good question, and it's a logical form of attack on the resurrection if you are, as they are, materialist empiricists who believe in nothing beyond what can be known by the reasoning of the mind governed solely by the experiences of the senses. Yes, yes. I've never seen someone be resurrected. Have you? You're telling me that we're to believe in something that no one has ever seen? I've seen bodies go into the ground. I've never seen them come back. 
And I've read many years of human history, and I've never heard of a body coming back and living eternally. No, I haven't. Even those who came out of the ground when the, when the body of... In the book of Ezekiel, I'm thinking of a variety of examples when the body is thrown into Elijah's grave, it comes alive. Or Ezekiel, when the dead, the bones in the, dry, in the valley of dry bones come together. They go back to death. They don't stay alive. Even Lazarus dies. So they are, as they see it, on, on really firm empirical ground. Rationally, empirically, they're... Now, of course, you say, well, I'm no Sadducee. I'm not a dedicated follower of reason. I see through this stupid trick. I would have found it easy myself to answer their question. God is bigger than your mind, you would say. God is bigger than your experience. You can't handcuff God this way, you would say. But is that so? Are we that different in our thinking and in our dedication to following our own senses and our own reason, our own minds? So Jesus responds to these men and to you and me. He says, you're mistaken. Actually, it has the connotation of you're deceived. You do Error, as the King James said, you make an error. Made a significant error because Jesus says they do not know. That's quite literally it. You know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And the important thing, it's important to recognize that Jesus has an order here for a reason. They they err, they, they are mistaken, first, because they do not understand or know the scriptures. They err second because they do not know the power of God. The first error produces the second. They do not know the scriptures. Not knowing the scriptures, they have not tasted and known the power of God. Both these statements, you do not know the scriptures and you do not know the power of God, are statements of a deeper knowledge than simply what comes through the eyes. At this point, Jesus actually uses scripture against them and he quotes from one of the five books that they admit, one of their canons. God is speaking from the burning bush in early Exodus. Moses sees the burning bush. He's out with the sheep and the goats. When he, when he sees the burning bush that's burning but not consumed, Moses is intrigued and he, he walks towards it. He's looking at this bush and he's going, whoa. Whoa. What is it? What is it? And as he approaches it, God speaks from the midst of the bush, we're told. And he says to Moses, 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 no doubt startled, says, here I am. God says, do not come near. 
Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. Now Moses is frightened. He's seen something he's never seen before. He's come into the presence of God. And at that point, God introduces himself to the frightened man, Moses, saying, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then we read, Moses hid his face because he was afraid. Now, the point Jesus is making by quoting this from Exodus, a point which the Sadducees, because they do recognize Exodus, have to acknowledge, is that God is speaking of a relationship to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to Moses, in the present tense and a current reality, an ongoing relationship not I was, but I am. And that despite the patriarchs having all died over 400 years before. Jesus then says, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Making clear that if God is still their God, that they still exist to him. Now, it is a telling blow to the, to the Sadducees in every way. It's what you call a coup de main. It's, it's like the, he comes in and he just wipes them out. It's like a, a Michael Jordan slam dunk because he not only is proving from their books the reality of the resurrection, but he's doing so in the midst of saying to you, you guys are, you're ignorant. You just don't know. You just don't get God. Now the men, the men he says this to, to whom he says, you do err, you make a mistake because you don't know the scriptures of the power of God. Actually, they do know this passage. (laughs) They know it real well, don't they? They don't say, oh, I never heard that in the Bible before. Where did you find that? That's not there. They know it. They know it, but they don't know it, right? They know it, but as Jesus says, they don't know it. They know it intellectually, but they don't know it in their hearts. In their hearts, they've said, nah, nah. I believe in what I can see and in what I can touch and I'm going to follow the logic of my mind and I am not going to let verses that strike me in a way that I don't like intrude on what I do know. I'm not going there. So they don't know it, though they do know it. It did not accord with their approach to life. It was not in line with their experience. They can say, well, I've never heard this. I've never heard the voice of someone raised from the dead. I've never tasted it. I've never smelled it. I've never seen it. So they deny it. They're empiricists. Prove it. Demonstrate it. I'll believe it when I see it. Rationalists. Dedicated followers of their minds and their reason. Doesn't make sense. I haven't seen it. I don't believe it. 
And so they gave the powers of their minds, their thoughts, their senses, the experiences that they had gone through, the things that they had personally sensed and seen, priority in their lives over the word of God and the power of God. Now, I've said that I think that if the reality were told that most of us would have to fall into the category of the Sadducees rather than the Pharisees. Do you understand why I say that? They were wrong because they didn't know Scripture. They didn't know it, but they rejected it, and so they'd never tasted the power of God. They thought themselves bright, logical, brilliant, pillars of reason, dazzling. Their own minds, supremely logical and reasonable, and yet they were terribly and eternally wrong. Reason can be a very good servant, but it is a terrible master in your life. And when you think your reason trumps God, rather than letting your reason be trumped by the word of God. You have become a Sadducee. One of the greatest mathematicians of all time was a French Christian named Blaise Pascal. Some of you have heard of Pascal. He was a great Christian thinker and a great scientist and mathematician. And he writes of the abilities of human reason as this great all-time master of mathematics, and there's no more reasonable science than mathematics, right? This man writes, it is not through reason alone that we know the truth, but through the heart also. It is through the heart that we know first principles. Reason, which has no part to play here, tries in vain to disprove these first principles that are known only by the heart. God loves me. God made me for a purpose. God is. God will judge the world. Every religion says these things. Every man on earth knows these things. It is wrong for a man to go and act as a woman. Reason says, well, ah, ah. the heart goes, no, I know. Many, many things that the heart understands, the mind rebels against. He writes, skeptics are always trying to do this, trying in vain to disprove what the heart knows by reason. But their efforts are wasted. We know we are not dreaming, and we may be unable to prove this rationally, but our inability proves only how weak reason is. It does not prove, as skeptics claim, that all our knowledge is uncertain. The knowledge of first principles and he says of these, space, time, motion, number. And he's saying things that, are, that you have to build reason on top of, that there is space, that there is time. He says these things are known by the heart. They're not understood by reason. They come to us through the heart. We've experienced it. We've seen it. We know it. He says these things, the knowledge of first principles, space, time, motion, number, is as assured as anything derived from reason. In fact, Reason has to depend on these first principles and base all its arguments on them. And these principles, first principles, come from the heart and from intuition. 
It is futile and ridiculous for reason to demand that the heart offer proof of first principles before reason will consent to accept them. It is futile and ridiculous for the Sadducees to say, prove the resurrection in order to accept it. Every religion believes in the conservation of the soul. Every man is convinced of it. Even if it's in this atheistic age where we say, well, we go back into Gaia. We go back into the karma of the universe and we get reborn. Just a crass form, a modern form of reincarnation. It's, it's everywhere. Everyone is a follower of first principles that are established in the heart. Now, logically, by their minds and the powers of their reason, the Sadducees considered their argument untouchable. They have not seen God. They have not experienced the resurrection personally. They have not seen people rise from the dead. They've heard of it, but those people are still susceptible to death. Therefore, as dedicated followers of reason, they deny the resurrection. But Jesus does not appeal to reason in his answer. Instead, he answers with authority. An authority that trumps the reason of these men by saying to them, how sad it is that you don't grasp these things. How sad. You don't know the Bible. You men of the Bible, you don't know it. Because you subject it to your reason. You don't know the Bible, and thus, not knowing the word of God, you've not tasted the power of God. If you had, you would grasp that in the resurrection, men and women do not marry, but they are like angels. Now Jesus then goes on to prove by scripture what these men should have known by the intuition of their hearts, that life is not just material and earthly, that there is a soul and that soul is eternal, that God will judge men in the life to come based on their deeds in this life, Simply what every religion ever has held to be true. So Jesus goes to them and says, you have bad hearts. And your mind is off base because your heart does not accept truth. You've rejected what every heart knows. And now you think that your mind can rule your heart and it can't. The heart is a better master. And a better source of truth than your reason. Yet, we are Pharisees, but even more Sadducees, because we judge God's word by our experience. We judge his promises by our doubts. We condemn these Sadducees as dedicated followers of reason, thinking ourselves better than them thinking ourselves more scriptural, yet we subject God to our senses and to our reason just as they did. Nowhere is this more evident than in the warnings and the promises Jesus gives. Do not live for the wealth of this world. It corrupts and it's disappearing. We say, oh, No, 
No, I've got to have money. The money's important. Yeah, God says that kind of thing. But wow, I can't, I can't go there. It's not reasonable. It's not reasonable. It's not reasonable. How many of you have been told that something that you're doing for God by people you love, it's not reasonable? You're not being reasonable. But nowhere do we find our heart harder to God than the promises he gives. Listen, God says these things to you. Jesus Christ says, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, cast your cares on God, for he cares for you. He says, seek first his kingdom, God's kingdom, and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. It says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I don't give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. You have me. Why are you so anxious and afraid? Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothes? Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. He'll be like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream. It doesn't fear when the heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Oh, you know these, don't you? I doubt there's one person here today who can say, I've never heard any of these. But somehow, we think that living in fear and anxiety is sensible, rational, right. We defend ourselves. We say, I, you know, you know, my father was, was a wicked man. He beat me. I can't trust God. I can't, I can't go there, I haven't seen it, you know. All I've seen are bad things and I'm not gonna trust God. And we're just like the Sadducees. We judge God's promises and truthfulness by our experience and we won't go where we don't wanna go. If we live in the land of anxiety and fear and worry, And Jesus says exactly the same thing to us that he said to the Sadducees. You're mistaken because you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. You need to speak to your mind from your heart. If you're a worrier and anxious and fearful and you need to say to your mind, shut up and go in the closet because 
God is true. God is faithful. I know in my heart this God, and I will not let you make me a Sadducee. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the way that it confronts us and the way that every time it confronts us and speaks to us, it makes us happy if we listen to it. So empower our hearts to believe, change our hearts so that we want your truth to govern our lives. Destroy the rationalism of our minds, Father. May our first principles all be found in our heart, in our knowledge of you, in our love for you, in our trust in you, in our knowing you as a father. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.